You are listening to a special 2022 Law Day edition of the Omaha Bar Association Bar Talk podcast. I'm Dave Summers, Executive Director of the Omaha Bar Association, and today you will be listening to an interview I conducted with Deb Gilg, former U.S. Attorney for the District of Nebraska. Deb is our 2022 Omaha Bar Association Lori Smithcamp Integrity in Service Award recipient. The award is named after the late Honorable Lori Smithcamp, who was the Omaha Bar Association president in 2020. Enjoy. Uh, thank you so much for, for joining us. Can you um, give us a little bit of your background growing up and what um, took you to law school? Well, I was born and raised in Omaha. Um, and I was here uh, living in Omaha until I went off to college at the University of Nebraska. Uh, from there, of course, I went to Nebraska Law School. Um, <clears throat> I never, growing up, really thought too much about being a lawyer. Um, <clears throat> I really sort of thought that I wanted to be a vet. Um, but <clears throat> once I got into high school and recognized that I just wasn't all that good at math, that perhaps that was not uh, the profession for me. Interestingly enough, my grandfather was a huge influence on me, on me. My grandfather had a third grade education. He worked on the railroad and he was just like the smartest man. And from the time I was a little girl, my grandfather kept saying, you know, you need to be a lawyer, you need to be a doctor, you need to be a lawyer, you need to be a doctor. That was always the message. Um, my growing up was somewhat turbulent. Some people know this story, some people don't, but I grew up in a very um, uh, violence-filled um, domestic violence home. Um, domestic violence, I was a victim of that. Uh, sexual abuse, I was a victim of that. Uh, my grandfather was like my salvation um, because my grandfather was the voice in my ear. And so by the time I graduated high school uh, and college, that voice in my ear was saying it louder and it was, you need to go to law school. So that's how I landed in law school. Was that a, a direct undergrad to, to law school? It was. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, you didn't go far. You, you went a, a few blocks away to the law school campus there. That's right. I, I did. And, and when I started back in the dinosaur age, it was the old... Um, law school. Oh, it wasn't in the same spot? It was a different one? No, it was the old law school. That I think the architecture school took over that building. So we had the old law school for the first semester, and then we moved to the new building on the East Campus, or the new building at that time, um, and completed law school there. So with the new building, what was it bigger than it needed to be? You know, you, you were moving into it. Was it... Uh, was it kind of tough to get adjusted to, or you guys were, were ready to go day one? I think we were ready to go day one, but um, if Judge Smithcamp were here, she would tell you that it was missing uh, <clears throat> an equal amount of women's bathroom. And that became one of her passions after she got on the bench, was to raise money uh, so that there would be another women's bathroom on the main floor of the Nebraska Law School. And by golly, she got it done. And I don't expect that you would go into the bathroom, but there is a plaque in the bathroom uh, about um, Judge Smith Camp in that bathroom. But she was in my law school class. She, both Dan and I were in, in the same law school class with, with Lori. And so um, <clears throat> it, it's just it, people have different interests and different things that 
that kind of tripped their trigger, and that was something that tripped her trigger. <laughs> uh, you know, I was I was going to get into it later, but uh, can, can you talk a bit about your friendship um, with her from uh, the perspective of, of being law school classmates and everything like that? And, and you've talked a little bit about this um, in like an ends of court um, remembrance, but but how she was in law school, how you remember her? Oh my, how I remember in law school. Well, she was kind of crazy. Um, she, um, she was dressed somewhat like a hippie, which I think a lot of people would have a hard concept wrapping their head around that. But I remember her um, coming into uh, constitutional law um, and um, with a red bandana around her hair and her hair kind of flying. And um, <clears throat> she... Uh, was very, very smart. That comes as no surprise. Uh, but, I mean, she was just brilliant. She could answer a question or she could ask a question as good as anybody. And um, she, um, uh, <clears throat> later, in later years, we kind of talked about law school together. And, and some of the things that she said really surprised me. And one of the things that she had told me was, she said, you know, in law school, she said, I never cared what grade I got. She said, I took something other than what we, we were required to take. She said, I took something because I thought I could get something out of it. And that's what I wanted. I wanted to get something out of it. I didn't care whether or not I get a, got a good grade at it. And uh, she said, there were some things that I took that uh, I got a lot out of, but I didn't particularly get a good grade. But she said, I got what I wanted. And, you know, um, what a great perspective to have going through those three stressful years. Um, I just wish that she were still here so that she could counsel young law students about that. So I try and take that, because I teach um, at the Arizona State University, uh, Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law, and I try and take those little gems from her and incorporate them um, when I'm teaching or when I'm having conversations with law students. Um, so post law school, did you know what you wanted to do, um, at, with, with your law degree? Did you know that you want to go to a county attorney position or how did that come? Oh, absolutely not. Um, I didn't even take criminal law in law school. Um, I took environmental law and all of these, um, warm and fuzzy things because I thought, you know, I was going to be able to go out and save the world with these things. Well, of course, reality hits and the reality was that, uh, back in the 70s, uh, it, there were few and far between female lawyers, and um, it was really tough to get a job, much less Dan and I at that point were married. So here we were, you know, a married couple. And interestingly enough, the o Omaha law firms didn't want to hire either one of us because they were afraid of conflicts of interest, I mean, which, you know, when you think about it now, you think, what? But it was a reality then. So, um, you know, we wound up um, out in western Nebraska, uh, which you might think was a really strange place. Um, but actually, we both wound up out there. I wound up in private practice, and um, Dan uh, went to work at an accounting firm with the idea that in a year he was going to move over to the law firm. Well, he never left the accounting firm. And um, so, you know, I did not become a prosecutor 
until nine years after I had been privately practicing. What, what private practice were you doing? Just general Just, everything? Oh yeah, uh, you know, cradle to grave is what you do in rural Nebraska. You do everything. Uh, I, I, when I come back to the city, everybody says like, what do you specialize in? I'm like, well, I don't have a specialty, you know? I mean, I just, I do it, I'm, you do it all, whoever walks in your office. But, um, <clears throat> so after nine years of doing criminal law, uh, defending people, I'd kind of decided that I was really tired of defending people. And um, I was encouraged by a group of citizens to run for county attorney. And that's what I did, and I never looked back. How was that election? It was hard fought. I went door to door. Um, I was running against a law school classmate who was the incumbent. And um, yeah, it was hard fought. And um, so um, I went door to door and um, did the old grassroots thing. And that's how I became county attorney. And then how long were you county attorney? I was county attorney for 16 years, okay. um, four terms. And then along the way, um, I picked up being county attorney in Arthur County, which was adjacent to Keith County. And then I kind of kept spreading. Um, I would um, get appointed a special deputy county attorney for various counties. And so by the time I left West Nebraska and came back to Omaha, I had been in 21 counties. Um, <laughs> uh, and again, um, Lori Smith Camp would always uh, introduce me as um, the closest thing um, to a private attorney general that the state of Nebraska has. She says because she's everywhere, <laughs> and and um, you know that's that's just the that's the nature of I you know I would get appointed to do a special case here or there, or somebody had a conflict, or uh, a county attorney didn't want to do child support cases or or whatever, so I would do them. And I would guess that in some of those counties, you were the first female county attorney along the way? Oh yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely, yeah. And how, how was that, um, be, being the first? Um, I, I, I don't think as a, as a, well, I wasn't the first female county attorney in the county that I won, okay? Um, the incumbent that I, uh, I beat was a female, and she was the first female county attorney. Um, but I was the first female county attorney maybe in Arthur County and the first female deputy in other counties. Um, I never really felt that I got, um, that there was any great surprise or any great um, uh, disparity in treatment um, by the judges. Um, <clears throat> or for that matter, well, the defendants don't have a lot of control over who's going to be the prosecutor. But I mean, yeah, even with the defense attorneys, because by that time, first of all, I'd been in private practice for nine years. And, and you should understand that I continued in private practice um, because outside of the Omaha and Lincoln areas, you know, the, the county attorney's jobs are, quote, part-time, which just means that um, they can't pay enough. So they allow you to have a private practice to subsidize what they're giving you as county attorney, and um, so I, you know, I continued on in private practice. Uh, something I would take cases, obviously, that were not in conflict with anything that I did as a prosecutor. But yeah, I don't. Um, I can't say that I really felt 
um, any real difference. Now, when he first started out there, um, no, I could tell you all, we could, we could tape this for days, and I could tell you all sorts of stories about judges and, and bad behavior. Um, but that's not what this is about. <laughs> it, it's not. It's not. Um, so, 16 years in to, uh, to your county attorneyship, you get a call and, and get appointed to the U.S. Attorney's Oh, no. Huh? How, how that come about? Nope. Actually, okay. Um, so, remember, I was nine years in private practice and 16 years after that as county attorney. Yeah. Um, Dan and I decided that we were going to move back to Omaha okay. um, because both of our parents were um, aging and they, they had some needs. And so we decided that we were going to move back. And we moved back to Omaha. I went into um, eventually into private practice with two other females, which had been a long-term goal of mine was to have a female law firm. And I was quite happy doing that. Um, then I got a call from Saunders County asking if... I could do their felony cases. And uh, so I started continuing my private practice. I would go to Saunders County, do their felony cases. Well, then I got appointed as a special prosecutor in other counties, including Douglas County. And so it started, mm, the prosecution business started overtaking again. It was sort of like that line in The Godfather where Al Pacino says, just when I think I'm out, they pull me back in. Um, that, that's kind of what happened to me. So I'd been um, doing that um, for several years, and then um, along came the election, Obama, and, um, and I was asked to serve as the U.S. attorney. Who were the other two uh, female attorneys in the firm with you? Monica Kruger and Ann Troya. Okay. Yeah, they were my partners, and... And um, they're, they're my lifelong friends, and they always will be. So you've, you've traveled this state. You've, you've been basically everywhere. You must put a ton of, or you must have put a ton of miles on your cars over the years. You, you, you must have had a lot of windshield time driving to and from around. <laughs> oh, ab yeah, absolutely. Um, I would put 40,000, 50,000 miles a year on my car, um, you know, traveling. Uh, windshield time um, yeah but you know what it, it was great because um, I got to know um, a lot of places I got to uh, meet and become familiar with a lot of judges a lot of attorneys in those areas so so that was all very good and um, let's talk a little bit about your time as, as US Attorney um, you oversee in that position uh, you know, a firm of how many attorneys? Well, at that time, um, there were 26 um, assistant U.S. attorneys, and then there, we had a number of special assistant U.S. attorneys, probably about an equal amount. And um, um, so all told, I think, with staff, uh, support staff and attorneys and so forth, probably around 70. That's a, that's a big operation. It's a big operation. It's spread among two offices because Omaha has the main office and Lincoln has the branch office. It's a big operation, but absolutely a wonderful people, uh, career prosecutors that had been there and knew how the place ran. And, and, and I really felt coming in that, um, and I've always felt this as a leader, 
um, or as a manager is that come in, try and figure out um, <clears throat> how the place runs operationally. And, um, and if it's running well, uh, try not to mess with it, you know? Let the professionals do their job. And, and um, in the case of the U.S. Attorney's Office, uh, there were professionals that were doing an exceptional job. So yeah. that made it easy for me. Yeah. Um, one thing that I, I saw I mean, was um, the work you did to improve um, prosecutions uh, on tribal lands or, or tribal people. Can you speak a yeah. little bit about that? Um, the Native American issues with domestic violence is a... Um, an issue then and still was very near and dear to me. Um, I had the honor of being appointed by then Attorney General Eric Holder to um, head a task force having to do with domestic violence against Native American women. As part of that, um, there were four pilot projects in the nation um, <clears throat> where what happened is that we hired an assistant U.S. attorney, and we expected them to spend their time on the reservations, so boots on the ground, because so many of the cases involving domestic violence never make it from um, law enforcement over to the prosecutor because of the familial relationships that there are. Everybody's related to everybody on the reservations. And so, and the rate, of uh, domestic violence is higher among Native American women than any group, the 90 percentiles. Okay, this is shocking. And so by actually putting somebody boots on the ground and starting to build a level of trust with law enforcement, tribal law enforcement, but also uh, for the domestic violence shelter or the individuals that were working domestic violence, knowing that they could go to this person and talk with them, um, it, yeah, yeah, it increased the prosecutions by 43%. I mean, it works. Yeah. It works. Um, unfortunately, um, the sad story is after a year, the Department of Justice didn't fund it. And oh my gosh, I made so many trips to Washington, D.C. I taught at the Department of Interior. Um, I talked until I was blue in the face. And finally, we decided um, if we couldn't do it one way, we would do it another. Um, it's against federal law uh, for any entity um, to fund um, a, uh, a federal project. Uh -huh. right. So, um, <clears throat> because um, what, what we worked out was that actually the Sherwood Foundation funded that project uh, and they gave a grant um, to the grant administrator for the three tribes. And so they gave the money to the tribes that enabled that project to continue on. And um, it was still in existence at the time I left U.S. Attorney's Office, uh, and I, but I think, I think maybe that grant has expired and, and I don't know what the status is, unfortunately, since that time. But, but I mean, it, it just maybe it bears repeating or maybe I'm just slow that without that project or without that attorney on the ground, victims would not actually get the perpetrator prosecuted. They would still be, you know, around that person. There, there would, 
the person would be out free to do it to somebody else or to them again. I mean, that That's is correct. just, that cycle doesn't stop. That's correct. If you don't prosecute that person. That's correct. That's, I mean, that's what needs to happen. I mean, and you need to have the services in place. You need to have the safe houses for the victims to go to, but you also need to have the services in place for, the, even if you put these um, offenders in prison, uh, they're gonna come back to the reservation, most likely. So it's a different dynamic than, than any place else. And so, um, so you have to give a lot of thought to what services are going to be available um, to make sure that this individual, um, you know, has the anger management counseling, has the type of um, services that they need to be able to break the cycle because they're going to come back. Mm -hmm. And um, and I, I just think that's really, really important. And I'm still um, very, um, very interested in, in fact, in December, um, I went off to a conference where I was a speaker for um, the Native American Tribal Council um, and Housing Alliance. And what they do is provide a lot of um, grants um, to tribal housing. And so I wanted to talk about uh, tribal housing and about the individuals that manage tribal housing, how important it is for them to um, have their eyes open about what's happening in tribal housing. And we talked a lot about, um, you know, <clears throat> being on the property and being alert for signs that there's domestic violence going on. One of the things that he found incredibly encouraging at that particular conference was there were, there were several um, Native American men that were present um, who got up and spoke and said, yes, um, you know, we need to be responsible for what's happening um, on the reservation. We need to, um, we, we as men need to step up and start talking about this. And, um, and I found that incredibly encouraging. So I'm very involved in still continuing with, um, that's all kind of part of my, what I've done since I've, supposedly retired is, is to try and um, find things like that or do things like that that um, help with women empowerment, uh, help with um, social issues um, that, that affect women. Yeah. So tell me a little bit more about, and I'm going to get the name wrong, Fierce Fearless. I'm Fierce sorry. Fearless. I get the name wrong too. Fierce Fearless and Forward. Okay, that that's a... Um, um, uh, an organization that I started um, <clears throat> that um, is sort of a vehicle for myself and, and others to be able to go out and do things uh, to talk to Native American groups and, and throw out ideas about domestic violence, but also to go out and talk um, to women um, about leadership skills um, negotiation skills. Women, uh, even women lawyers, aren't very good at uh, advocating for themselves. Um, I found rapidly in doing the negotiation skills, I was doing negotiation skill workshops for um, female physicians, and I was really shocked um, when I found out, um, you know, how few of them 
uh, had the slightest idea about how to advocate for themselves uh, salary-wise. And um, over that two-day conference, I offered, stupidly, that I would give um, uh, 15-minute free consultations um, to anybody who wanted to sign up. And I, and I said, well, I would do it for, you know, a couple hours. Oh, my gosh. Um, the person at the front desk came and said, I've got um, this all filled, plus I have over here this huge waiting list uh, of people. So I wound up over the two days doing 57 um, <clears throat> uh, of these little workshops. But um, I also dragged, and I have to, I have to give credit to um, Judy Schweiker because she was with me, and um, I dragged her into it. So um, both she and I did that um, together, but it was exhausting. But at the same time, it was also, gosh, look at this void that's out there. Um, and, it, and if we have women professionals who aren't comfortable doing this stuff or advocating for themselves, how many um, other um, areas, uh, business areas, can we be of help? And, and it's, you know, countless numbers. And uh, in talking with Jennifer Peterson a little bit about this, she, she mentioned um, maybe there's something like a kind of a salary survey that's going on to, to even yeah. aggregate more of that information. Yes past just the individual situations, but kind of more get, get a wider group of information and, and sort of present that? Well, the American Bar Association has done it on a national level. And then, um, of course, uh, the American Medical Association has also done it. Interestingly enough, um, women physicians and female lawyers aren't that different in terms of the gender disparity uh, in the profession. And, um, you know, um, I can't speak for probably the most recent figures, but it's, there's about a 23 to 25% um, gender disparity. 75 cents on the dollar. Mm -hmm. That's right. Still. Still. In legal. <laughs> yes. <laughs> wow. Yes. Um, that, that is significant. What, uh, what do we need to do? as a profession better, um, what can get us to parity? Well, number one, you have to acknowledge, first of all, you have to identify the problem. Second of all, you have to um, acknowledge the problem. And uh, then third, you have to figure out, as you suggest, what do we do to get us to parity? Um, I think um, education with law firms uh, the larger law firms, uh, because by and large, that's where you see this gender disparity uh, occurring, mm -hmm. is in the larger law firms. And it may not start out that way. I mean, it may start out that everybody comes in as an associate and they're paid X amount, mm -hmm. but then as things advance, and you also have the factor of, uh, of female attorneys trying to juggle um, work-life balance and families. So you have female attorneys that may be stepping away for a while because um, they're having families. And so when they step back in, um, then you have the disparity in the salary. On the other hand, you have the male attorneys who think, well, 
you know, she left the firm and I've been here working away. And so um, I deserve to make more than she does because I've stayed the course. So you've got, you've got that whole dynamic going on. Well, and I, I like to think that um, the, the market we're in right now with a huge need locally, at least for attorneys, for younger attorneys, is opening up the firm's minds to understanding, you know, everything better. How can we appreciate our attorneys more? How can we um, make sure that we're, we're treating them well? And I, I would hope that it would it would lead to rethinking the, the old way of how it's been done and, and been unequal. Dave, you're so right. I mean, I think that we are at a point F you know, I don't want to say post-pandemic, but as we're starting to move out of the pandemic, I think the whole work model has changed so drastically uh, for men and women um, <clears throat> that it does open up these possibilities. And if you had uh, talked to a major law firm partners two years ago or three years ago about working from home, oh my gosh, you know, that would have been, no way would that happen. But it's happened and found out that, hmm, this isn't a bad work model. And um, so I think it's opening up uh, eyes to there, there are other ways we can go about doing this, making the lawyers happy, um, and getting the job done. So in that vein of, of you know, things changing, um, I'd love to get your perspective uh, on criminal prosecution um, and how that has evolved or, or, you know, sentencing and criminal prosecution and, and the job you did um, from, from, you know, when you, uh, when you stopped being in the position and, and to now even, you know, uh, if you have any thoughts on, on where things have gone there. If not, that's fine. <laughs> Just... Well, you know, I, I, I do, um, and I don't, I mean, this is any disrespect to anybody who's doing the job now. I've done a lot of thinking about <clears throat> when I've done prosecutions where we had people that were transporting marijuana and the number of um, individuals that wound up being incarcerated during my term, um, during the time that I was county attorney, um, and we prosecuted all these individuals for marijuana and we made them go to prison. And it makes you sort of rethink that whole thing as you're seeing all the decriminalization. Um, probably not unlike prohibition. Um, years ago with history, you know, sending people away uh, because they were in possession of, you know, moonshine. And, um, and then all of a sudden it's legal. Um, and I, th I think that the studies have shown that there's such a disparity in the individuals that are being sent to prison for these types of offenses uh, racially. And um, I think we have to step back and say, what are we doing? Uh, we need to uh, look at the bigger picture and decide what's more important for us to be uh, prosecuting. And <clears throat> so I would say to you, uh, after being out of the game for five years, if I were to go back, yeah, there were things I would do different. Absolutely. I would be much, much more aware of the disparities, um, the racial disparities, and I would um, try very hard to um, engage in uh, 
different models of prosecution, um, of reform of, of criminal justice. We're very excited to give you the Lori Smith Camp Integrity and Service Award. Um, you're only the second recipient. Judy Gashmagash uh, was a recipient last year. And um, could you talk just a bit more maybe about your relationship with Lori and what she meant to you? Oh my, well, um, Lori was, um, Lori was my good friend. Um, <clears throat> as a person, um, I thought that um, she was a very kind person, a very, um, she had a lot of interests. Um, she loved to garden. Um, she, um, um, Willa Cather was her, was her favorite. Um, loved to travel. Um, we had lots of conversations regarding traveling and just, just things of, of mutual interest. Um, uh, we had a little group um, that met every other month. I don't know if you heard about this, but um, we had a wine and cheese group in Wineming, W-H-I-N-E is how that was spelled. And um, it was just composed of uh, just a few of us and um, we would just have a hilarious time um, and we would talk about everything and anything, uh, nothing law related. Um, and um, she was funny. Um, she, um, I mean, she was, she was just a good friend. I, she was somebody I could call and um, we, we could laugh about something. Um, and she was, she was there and now she's not. But she's, she's with us in other ways. So absolutely. Um, you're teaching right now and you've mentored and taught a lot of people over the years for young attorneys or law students watching this or, or even younger, uh, any words of wisdom or advice for them? Um, and any, anything that you think they should, they should keep close to them when they're thinking about how they're going to practice? Or maybe even what they're going to do. You know, I tell, as I've told you before, um, I I like to wrap some um, some thoughts that over the years Lori uh, would impart to to my students. But um, there's going back to the fierce, uh, fearless, and forward and the women empowerment thing. One of the things that I have discovered over the years of my teaching. Uh, as an adjunct is that um, I'll get young female lawyers or lawyers to be in my class and about three quarters of the way through um, inevitably I have one or two of, or more of them who come to me and say you know what I, I was just taking this class because I just never thought I could be a litigator but I've decided but I can be a litigator and so to, to me, to have a student come up and say that to me is, is everything. Uh, it's why I keep teaching, is because obviously something in that teaching area impacted um, this individual and empowered them to believe that they could become a litigator. Um, the, one of the things that I stress with my students from the get-go is about cordiality and collegiality in the law, something that I think is lost 
um, and that <clears throat> and that's something that took me a long time um, because I'm a slow learner um, to realize and that is that you should never let somebody else's bad behavior dictate yours um, and that's the one thing I tell them over and over you're gonna get out and practice um, you're gonna have that one law firm or lawyer or whomever that is just atrocious when you're dealing with them and you're gonna find that your behavior will start to slide that way as well and there'll come a day where you stop and go I don't like myself I don't like I don't like the practice of law I don't like what it's done to me um, you can avoid all of that if um, you just remember that <clears throat> take the high road um, don't don't become that atrocious lawyer so that you can match them um, that's not who you are that's not what the practice of law is about and um, and go forward and and go home every night and be proud of what you did and be proud of how you behaved because you are as a lawyer as a law student you're a role model for somebody and you want to make sure that you are the type of role model that you would like to have had very well said very well said and, and i i love the first part too on um you know I, I think a lot of times we're told you can't do this or you shouldn't do this right? oh no no i i'm very much um talk to me about what what it is that you want to do with my students i always want and I, students stay in touch with me from year to year. And um, I had, uh, when I was teaching in Nebraska, I had one of the lost boys of Sudan um, in my class. And um, he was wonderful. And I went to his TED talk. And his TED talk um, and things that he had undergone. And he got a job as an assistant uh, DA in the Manhattan DA's office. And I just saw that he got put on the top 40 lawyers under 40 in Manhattan. And I remember when he left my class, I said, someday you're gonna be the Secretary General of the UN. And he said, Professor, you'll be the first person I call. <laughs> and I'm like, I hope I'm still alive. But yeah, I mean, it's just, it, I think that's the job of an educator. That's the job of a leader is to help others become the best person that they can be or to bring out that best side of them. Another example, and I'm, I know I'm talking too long here, Dave, but no. <laughs> gosh, I just, I have the most wonderful, diverse students. This past year, I have a student who has a bunch of family in Ukraine. And Joseph's family came from Russia. So Joseph's first language until he was seven was Russian, but um, <clears throat> uh, his family lives in LA and as we've gone through the semester with the whole Ukraine thing um, <clears throat> and every week um, in the law school in ASU law schools a thousand students is huge it's six floors and but on every floor there's a um, big open space uh, between the classrooms sort of like courtyards you can sit out there so students always know I'm there early and I'm sitting out in the courtyard and you know it's it's like a free-for-all whoever wants to come over and, and have a chat so every week Joseph and I would talk about 
what's going on because he would read all the Russian um, or watch the Russian language um, TV segments and so forth. The beginning, the whole Ukraine set thing, he said, Professor, I'm, as soon as I graduate, he goes, I'm not going to take the bar. He said, um, my 18-year-old son, or brother and I, were going to go to the Ukraine and fight. And I, I'm, you know, the mother in me comes out and I said, you know, mm, I don't think that's a real good idea, Joseph, but I understand. And um, so as the semester has progressed, it's sort of moved from that. At one point I said to him, you're a lawyer, not a soldier, okay? You can do things as a lawyer to help your people go to Poland, work in the refugee camps, or um, take the bar, and he always intended that he was going to practice on his own because he, he wanted he didn't want to work for a big firm. And I said, practice and do immigrant uh, practice and help the Ukrainians that are going to be coming into the country. Yeah. Uh, and of course, ten of them were already li living in his family home of three bedrooms in uh, back in L.A. and uh, so as the semester has progressed, we've moved away from the I'm going to go over there and fight um, part to mm, I need to think more about the bigger picture in terms of what I can do to help. So, um, you know, that to me is mentorship and that's it's listening. Um, it's maybe making a suggestion or two and then seeing how they develop with that. Yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, you you can't tell them what to do. <laughs> no. That, that's never going to work. No, no. <laughs> it's mostly, um, yeah, mostly listening and, and a few suggestions here and there to, yeah. to, to nudge them. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's been extremely interesting um, to sort of go through the experience in a small part with him. Um, and and that's, what, um, that's a great part about um, teaching trial advocacy, having a smaller group of students and getting to know them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's great. I'm... I'm so thankful that we got the chance to sit down with you. We'll see you at Law Day um, to, to give you the award there. Thank you so much.